0: Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. We can perhaps get started now. I'd first like to introduce um, our wonderful speakers who are with us today and have volunteered their time to speak with us. Um, Our first speaker is Dr. Katrina Lee Ku. Um, Katrina is an Associate Professor of International Relations, and, you know, if you've studied that, you may be familiar with who she is. Um, She teaches and researches in the field of gender, peace and security, and women and leadership. Katrina is currently an Associate Editor of the International Feminist Journal of Politics, and she has recently co-edited two books, um, one titled Young Women and Leadership, and the second, gender and politics navigating political leadership in Australia, um, which are all really important topics that we'll be drawing upon in today's discussion. Um, we are also joined today by Dr. Jane Marie Mayer, um, and she is a professor at the Centre of Women's Studies and Gender Research in the School of Social Sciences. So um, if you, you've done a bit of that, you also might be familiar with her face. Um, Jane Marie's research focuses on women's work, motherhood, Um, in family and gender violence. Um, She's additionally um, a treasurer and past president of the Australian Women's and Gender Studies Association. Um, Yep, so our next speaker is Dr Anjali De Silva. Um, Anjali's currently a counsellor for the Mount Waverley Ward, um, which we really think puts her in a good position to contribute to the conversation today. Um, Anjali has a PhD from Melbourne Law School and is currently a postdoctoral fellow there. Um, She's also the managing editor at the Australian Feminist Law Journal. Very cool. Um, And Anjali has a strong passion for social justice um, issues, especially as they relate to women. Um, And lastly, our final speaker is Yasmin Poole. Um, Yasmin's a law student at ANU, but also does have Monash roots. So um, as she did her first year at Monash, and that's how we met. Um, She's a public speaker, writer and youth advocate. in particular, Yasmin's an advocate for young women having a place in political conversations and has been on um, programs as QA, The Drum, um, and The Project. Um, she has a number of accolades to her name. She's been recognized as one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence, and this year she's been recognized as um, the 2021 Youth Influencer of the Year by the Martin Luther King Jr. Centre. Um, She has also recently completed a thesis and analysed constitutional law from an intersectional perspective. So, yeah, um, that's all our speakers here today, and we're very glad to have you here. Um, Before we get started, I'd also just like to preface this conversation by giving some context into, I guess, why we're having this conversation today and why this conversation um, is a really important one. Um, Last year, we had a panel discussion on um, gender in the law. And we had a conversation about the hierarchical male culture of the legal profession that a lot of us are entering. Um, And this was really sparked out of High Court um, Justice Dyson Hayden's behaviour in the highest judicial office um, in this country. Um, This conversation today is really a continuation of that, but focusing on um, the political offices in this country. Again, it's no surprise that we've heard incidents of sexual harassment over the past year and stories of um, toxic workplace culture and politics. Um, and so, so today we're really going to talk about that and um, focus on that. Um, so and with that, I think I'd like to ask my first question um, to our speakers here today. Um, I was wondering, given what we've seen in Parliament over the last year, what were the biggest obstacles that you think exists for women in Parliament, whether that be to women entering Parliament or... Women staying in Parliament. Perhaps um, Yasmin, did you want to answer first?
1: Um, I think the reality is that there's barriers on all fronts, and um, this week I actually spoke about the recent documentary around Julie Gillard, where we saw horrifically sexist treatment to somebody that has essentially the highest um, political office, you know, political position in Australia. Um, all the way down to the March for Justice movement and Brittany Higgins, which happened to a political staffer. So I think when we talk about barriers, it's almost, you know, it's not kind of like one level and once you surpass it, you suddenly are treated equally and fairly. Patriarchy is absolutely endemic to the, to the, op- to the operation of parliament. And I think we can see the legacy of what happens when we exclude women from office, um, for, for decades essentially. Um, and while women formally had the ability to run, that didn't happen until decades after um, women actually obtained the right to vote. So I think when we talk about barriers, there's that um, you know, there's the patriarchal barrier, but there's also from an intersectional perspective, other. And you know, when we talk about why aren't young people in parliament and especially why aren't young women in parliament, there's also cultural attitudes towards you know people expecting you to have to be older and have to have a certain level of experience like that is, like being young isn't also a way of viewing and experiencing the world and our systems, that also holds us back. Um, I think one particular issue is that because of the way that pre-selection works in Australia and the nature of democracy, it means that candidates have to feel a certain expectation um, and, you know, deliver what their party expects and as we can see in the recent Fowler Incident, As I'm sure many of you have seen, that's also another potential barrier towards um, diverse individuals actually going uh, and going into parliament. So I think that's, you know, one one kind of level there. But I think it extends beyond parliament. And that's also what we're seeing in March for Justice, Um, hearing from young women like Grace Tame, for example, who's who's talking about on the ground, even in spaces like schools where women can be sexually harassed and sexually assaulted. Um, this occurs across community as well. So I think when we talk about barriers, it comes down to those structural positions where it's on one space, we've seen the same people in power men, (laughs) Anglo um, elite men that have consolidated power and gatekeep power um, from those that want to um, increase the ranks, but also within community um, patriarchal violence, I think, towards women that occurs from all different ages, but starts even being young. And again, that's what March for Justice highlighted. So um, I think that holistic holistic view is particularly pertinent, but also again, from that intersectional spe- perspective, noting those barriers are even higher for, um, for diverse women.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Um, did any one of our other speakers have any thoughts on this issue? Um, Hi, everyone.
2: I think Yasmin really nicely encapsulates a lot of the issues uh, that are facing women trying to enter Parliament as parliamentarians. And I think when we think about sort of some of the structural obstacles, we've got to think about every aspect of that process. So one of the key things that we've seen a lot of reform on in the Labor Party, particularly, is the way in which candidates are selected and pre-selected for positions. So questions about who is pre-selected in safe seats, who is pre-selected in winnable seats, um, where are they positioned on the ballot paper? All of these sorts of issues have had a strong determining factor on women's ability to be able to be elected in the first place. I think another major issue we need to think about for women, particularly in federal parliament, is the ongoing expectation in our society that women take on caring responsibilities in the home. Um, So if you're a federal parliamentarian, you're often spending at least 20 weeks in Canberra, which is, unless you're representing Canberra, not your home city. Um, If you're in a large electorate, our biggest electorate is the electorate of Durak in Western Australia, it's over 1.6 million square kilometres. You're expected to travel throughout your electorate to visit your uh, constituents. So you're spending a long time away from home. And if you don't have support at home in terms of looking after children or elderly parents, then this becomes a major structural barrier for women. Um, And you see often when women sort of resign from Parliament. So recently, Kelly O'Dwyer, Kate Ellis and others, they've talked about the importance of putting family first and of needing to spend more time with their families. So I think that's a major structural barrier as well. And I know we'll talk, I mean, Yasmin talked about it a little bit, but the attitudes and treatment of women in Parliament, not just by the media and by the broader community, but also by other parliamentarians. I think we really need to think about that.
3: Um, I might jump in quickly. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as well and acknowledge their um, leaders past and present. Um, And I don't have too much at all to add to what Yasmin and Katrina have said. I think they've really nicely um, captured um, a broad range of the structural impediments to women in parliament um, and women's political participation generally. I think the only um, point that I wanted to make, and Katrina and Yasmin both drew this out as well, is that there are are really obvious um, impediments that perhaps feel more material and that are more tangible to perceive and to quantify. So as Katrina pointed out, it's no coincidence that um, most um, federal Politicians who are male have wives or partners who don't work full time and who take on um, the bulk of the caring responsibilities. It's also no coincidence that we see um, more female politicians um, stepping aside from politics, citing family reasons um, and not being able to find husbands or partners who support them in quite the same way over quite the same amount of time for a career in politics. There's also um, the really apparent discrimination and sexual violence that women face in parliament as has been um, revealed through uh, Brittany Higgins' um, rape allegations as well as the egregious sexual harassment um, that was revealed as part of the recent Four Corners inquiry. Um, But then there are also those subtle cultural impediments um, where attitudes and treatment of women as Katrina said contribute to constant othering of them in ways that mean that they can't participate fully either as an elected representative or just as part of uh, um, overall political communication in the ways that um, men and male politicians might be able to do. So in my life as an academic away from council I study hate speech against women. Um, It's rife particularly in online spaces but also in offline spaces. Um, We all know about the the witch sign that was held up about Julia Gillard, um, a lot of the treatment of women through communicative conduct that was described in the misrepresented series for example would constitute hate speech against women under any under existing legal definitions hate speech against women isn't unlawful at the moment but under existing comparable definitions of racial vilification for example um, even defamatory comments like those directed at sarah hanson young um, that she was successful getting compensation for those would under a different definition constitute um, hate speech as well as defamatory speech and all of those contributions to a misogynistic patriarchal culture really stand in the way of women being able to speak out to participate put themselves forward for these positions and then also to succeed and um, in sustainable long-term ways within those positions if they get there as well.
4: Um, thank you for all your comments, everyone. Um, did anyone have anything else to add on that question in particular? I I think
5: people have talked to the really what's been revealed this year. I think one of the things that has been a bit startling and shocking has been that in 2021 this is still the kind of context and I would argue perhaps particularly in terms of the hate speech that Anjali was talking about that there has in some ways been a kind of a hardening of those types of micro and macro aggressions towards women and people of diverse genders in terms of public participation. You know I think to consider, you know, I was reading Lee Sale's article um, about the type of abuse that journalists routinely get and I don't want to romanticise the good old days because there's no such thing as the good old days and it's always, I think, been... um, a misogynistic space that political life has always valorized a cisgendered male and a particular type of performance of leadership and participation but i have been startled uh to see the intensity and the viciousness and the the types of behavior that have really been revealed in the last couple of years and i wonder uh, about what that means. I think it certainly means there's a very particular challenge now. I think it means that the patriarchy is an adaptable and nasty critter that <laughs> needs to be kind of corralled in all different sorts of way, but it, ways, but it does seem like there's a real challenge here and now that, um, when often people are tired from all of the types of fighting they've had to do for inclusion already. So not a very cheerful add-on, but it, it, it's we we are talking in 2021, and when I was 21, I wouldn't have thought we would have still
4: had to have this conversation.
5: Those are all
4: such important points, I think. They really point to the fact that even once you do get past those initial structural barriers in Parliament, you're still bombarded with barriers in your workplace, feeling comfortable and feeling that identity threat of identifying as a woman. Um, I think moving on to perhaps what it's like to be a female in the workplace, um, I'll just lead into our next question. Um, So we've seen women such as Brittany Higgins disclose rape by another staffer um, but express reluctance to do so when it first happened. And we also have seen Julia Gillard, who chose not to confront the sexist treat, sorry, treatment of her um, early in her term. And so just for the speakers, we're wondering what you think makes it so difficult for women to speak out about their sexist treatment in politics. I, I think for
5: everyone who wants to participate in a professional life, there's a bit of uh, there's always a challenge, you know, what what fights do you pick? What things do you call out? You call out many less things when you're in insecure or precarious employment. One of the things I've noted about myself getting older is that I'm more willing to call things out now, but that's because I'm more secure and I have less to lose. So I think, you know, I think it's always an assessment about, what will be the outcome if I go head on into this behaviour, or if I talk about it? What's the potential for change? Who will stand with me when I speak? Which is often a really complicated—that's um, uh, a really complicated computation you make because lots of times people want to support each other to make change, but they do so behind closed doors and too often uh, I hear stories about, well, you know, we've been trying to manage and I did this and I told so-and-so, but systems are often really stacked um, against effective complaint processes and I think, you know, all of you will have seen stories about that or experienced that or, in types of work you've undertaken you know there's a real it's always a trade off to to stand up and to speak out whether you've been affected whether you've seen someone doing it and i have great i have great respect for any type of speech that brings this forward whether it's covert support whether it's activist whether it's you know i think People often make contributions to seeking change in the ways that they can, but it is an incredibly hard thing to do. I think. And just um, just to echo some of Jane Marie's
3: comments about how difficult it is, I think the whole point of um, patriarchy's success and existent existence is to constantly and continuously police and reinforce its own structures and um, one of the times that we see that happening most vehemently is when women speak out and try to challenge those structures um, try to criticize them or try to change them. Um, I see it really commonly in the context of hate speech. Um, it's, It's an extremely well-known phenomenon that if a woman is subjected to cyber harassment, for example, and she um, talks back against it or tries to draw attention to it in some way, she will be subjected to more of the same. Um, It's also the case, unfortunately, that I think you can't always rely on allies in the places that you think you might. So we know from the Brittany Higgins case, for example, that there were other women in Parliament who... um, called her a liar and who didn't show their support, um, even when those women were supposed to be supporting her as a matter of professional entitlement as part of the normal processes for that kind of a complaint. Um, and so it's really about the backlash, I think, and, and that kind of backlash is extremely effective at keeping people silent um, or at painting them in two corners um, when they want to speak
2: out about mistreatment. I I would agree with both of those points. I mean, the the answer to this is really, it's deeply embedded in the political culture. The political culture is what patrols people's behaviour. It determines what people think they can get away with and what they they know they can't. Um, And the two cases you talked about, Ella, are in some ways quite different, but it's the same kind of dynamic at play. For Brittany Higgins, you know, she was someone who was in a situation of reasonable powerlessness. And there was, as Jane Murray said, there was no independent, reliable process where she could make her complaint and feel confident uh, that she would be able to have that complaint investigated and assessed free of retribution to her. And that was a, that was a reasonable concern for her. She ended up, you know, as we know, having to leave her job because of the way in which that played out. Um, And it takes enormous bravery on her part for her to continue that complaint because that will stay with with her now, of course. Um, And and Julia uh, Gillard is quite different. I mean, as as Yasmin alluded to earlier, she she was most senior politician in the land with it, in some ways, enormous power. But when you read her reflections on this now, she talked about it in her Women in Leadership book. You know, she says that at the time... um, She felt that if she called the sexism out, she would be sort of derided for not being able to hack it, you know, for not being able to do the job, for being a whinger and a whiner and not being able to respond to a little bit of, you know, critique or or, or fair criticism or, um, you know, people just having fun type thing. Uh, now she reflects on that and she says, I wish I'd called it out earlier. I wish I'd called it out sooner and I would wish I'd called it out harder. And that might have had an impact in changing the culture. Um, and other of her contemporaries, uh, Kate Ellis, for instance, has written in her book that one of her big regrets was that she didn't stand up and say that's not acceptable way to speak to the Prime Minister. Um, and while it's fine to have regrets later on, um, I'm not necessarily sure it would have been different had they stood up you know, whether they would have been able to change the culture, because that culture is very persistent. Um, So it's a very, you know, these are difficult decisions to make. um, And it's good to be reflective on them. But as Jane said, it takes an enormous amount of courage and often comes at an enormous cost uh, to speak up about these sorts of things. So it's very, very tricky.
1: Yeah. And I guess to add on to that, I would say it's it's the question of hierarchy, right? And parliament is just one of the most hierarchical places in all of Australia. And you can see what happens when there is strong hierarchy without intervening processes in place. And I think one example of hierarchy was when um, there was an infamous moment when minister. I can't remember her portfolio then, but um, Anne Rustin was asked whether this Parliament is sexist and she opened her mouth to speak and Scott Morrison said, if I can just interrupt, <laughs> sorry, if I can just say something and cut her off, um, which I think is actually really good. If we actually examine what just happened in that moment is actually a good representation of what happens in Parliament, which is that, Often, you know, people are spoken over um, by individuals that are trying to assert the conventional understanding of leadership, which is, you know, knowing all the answers, being dominant, being assertive. And as a result, we see people that have, you know, may have experienced patriarchy and other forms of marginalisation being pushed to the side as part of the narrative, you know, essentially pawns the narrative instead of actually driving the conversation from their own experiences. Um, And I think that also turns to, I think a lot of, I mean, not only the fact that women have precarious positions in parliament, especially in certain parties where there's um, less women in particular, um, but also that politicians aren't demonstrating that this is something that they care about. And I think about the recent news that parliament and particularly the Liberal Party has voted down Um, I think, 49 out of 55 recommendations in the Respect at Work report. And that, to me, is very concerning and sends a strong message to not only the community but within Parliament that it's still a political issue and comes with political calculations. And I think that is something that, um, you know, is very, very um, difficult for any woman of any position of power or even down to the lowest levels of power in Parliament to deal with. Um, and then the final one, the final part that I wanted to talk about was something in my notes that I have now forgotten what I wanted to say. But if I remember, I'll come back to it. But um, the session, yeah, that was essentially my thinking on that.
0: Yeah, no, that's all good, Yasmin. We can always just come back to it later. Um, thank you all for those insights. I guess we can really see how embedded this patriarchal culture is in preventing women from speaking
1: out. Okay, so I just remember what I wanted to say. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to add, I was actually thinking about um, what Katrina said about Julia Gillard. And what I noticed about when I was watching that documentary, some of the sexism was very obvious. So it was about her style of dress, what, you know, her partner, all of those questions. But there was a deeper level of patriarchy where it was particularly male shock jock commentators had this level of hatred towards Julia Gillard that was not like previous leaders of different sides of the political spectrum there was a different level of how dare she you know I think this kind of different level of of, um, anger and hatred that she thought would subside and didn't and I think sometimes it's that kind of sexism that's a little bit harder to precisely articulate but is different is a gendered experience that I think back then Julia Gillard thought, again, that was just a natural part of, of politics and didn't speak up, but it was a, really a tidal wave. So I think it's um, probably also ambiguity in, in what is sexist and what is just part of the culture. Maybe it's maybe that's impossible to define. Maybe it is, and I think it is, innately gendered, often the way that politicians are treated. So that was something that I also picked up from from the recent documentary.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, Yasmin. Um, Casey, Casey do you,
3: um, yeah, just to jump in really quickly. Um, t- I just wanted to um, refer back to something really interesting that Katrina said, which is um, which was her where her observations on how Julia Gillard thought she would be perceived. She actually came out and spoke about her treatment and ideas of being a winger and not being able to hack it, and all of those perceptions are so gendered in and of themselves. Um, And I think it really demonstrates how the whole system and all of the structures are set up to penalise people who don't ascribe to that um, hyper-masculine, hyper-dominant mode of leadership. And they're almost kind of predestined to ensure that those who are speaking up and those who are saying I've been victimised by this treatment, whether they're women or perhaps whether they're men who don't ascribe to the same gender norms, are punished for doing so. Um, And that really is the biggest barrier, I think, to to being able to challenge those structures.
0: Yeah, completely. Um, Moving on to the next question, um, I was wondering how does the legal system play a part in um, preventing or into feeding into those power structures and into preventing women from speaking out and from um, speaking about what's happened to them? Um, we know this year that Christian Porter sued the ABC for defamation, and um, I think he's discontinued his claim now. And we know hearing Julia Banks speak on her time in parliament, she's with. Ref- refuse to say anything about her incident of harassment for fear of consequences. Um, So my next question is, what role does the legal system play in preventing um, victim survivors um, from speaking out and their perpetrators not being held accountable? Perhaps Anjali?
3: Um, Sure. I'm happy to talk about this. I have very strong opinions about defamation law in particular as a free speech lawyer um, and as a hate speech lawyer. Everyone's very worked up about Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act um, on the basis that it unduly impinges upon our free speech rights which in my opinion it doesn't Um, but what does present I think a threat to free speech is the extraordinarily broad reach of defamation law um, both as it's written in the common law and as it's um, increasingly being interpreted there was a recent case um, a high court decision um, that Now suggests that, for example, people who hold accounts on Facebook can also be deemed to be publishers of hateful or defamatory comments um, that are um, put in the comment sections of those accounts. So um, really, really broad interpretations. We saw that... Defamation law is used by a range of powerful men, not just in Australia but globally. So, Trump used it a lot um, to try and silence women who were bringing sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations against him. Um, it was used by Christian Porter. Um, and I think, um, absolutely, law is a male, masculine, patriarchal. Um, establishment and institution and it's no coincidence that it's set up to protect protect particular kinds of speech and particular kinds of reputations Um, and defamation law has traditionally protected the powerful and the wealthy Um, whereas for example hate speech law which is much more controversial and a traditional free liberal free speech theory is designed to protect the vulnerable and that is why it's more controversial under the traditional liberal free speech theory. Um, in addition to defamation law, I think one of the things that really struck me during the Christian Quarter matter was the way that the idea of the rule of law was being mobilised to essentially silence women and to um, get in the way of ultra-legal, so outside of the legal system, community building and truth-telling and comfort-seeking that victims of this kind of discrimination and abuse were trying to engage in. Um, It was used to essentially suggest that um, if you did not have a rape conviction, that you were to be presumed innocent in all fora, Um, And that that was basically the end of the matter. Now, obviously, that's not what the rule of law says at all. The rule of law says that you are entitled to a fair trial, that you cannot be um, incarcerated pursuant to criminal law until unless a particular standard of evidence is met. um, And also um, that the same laws and rules apply to everyone across the board it does not say anything about parliamentary inquiries for example or other administrative inquiries it doesn't say anything about what you can say to your friends about an experience that you've had um, or how you can define and speak to your own truth but it was really being mobilized um, by a lot of powerful men in this country to shut down debate about Um, a particular incident that someone was someone's friends and family were alleging had happened to her it was most apparent in the Christian Porter case but I think it happens a lot um, in relation to um, this kind of event
5: Uh, I would want to add to that I think it was such a blatant disregard for the way particularly the criminal law system works to disavow women's experiences of assault or the experience um, because you know there, there are so few convictions there are so few cases where gender-based violence is effectively um, examined effectively addressed that when a leader of a country stands up and says well that's the standard he's actually I think straight out saying well you've got no chance really of of getting us in this way but but of course um as angelie said that's not the standard in a workplace we don't pop into work at monash and go let's look around, oh, no criminal convictions, we're all good here, people, in terms of our behaviour. There's actually an expectation that um, that there is appropriate conduct, that there are appropriate forms of exchange, that there's safety and security, even though they're not wanting to introduce that proactive obligation for... um, for workplaces, that was a central part of respect at work. But there are really solid obligations around behaviour, appropriateness, and standards that are embedded in every workplace. And, uh, you know, I think it it was that kind of dual thing, the mobilisation of law as such a Blunt, as such, a blunt instrument, and the refusal to think about the obligations we have in workplaces, which extend well beyond making sure that um, our folk are not committing criminal offences against other people uh, in our workplace. It, there is, I, I think, in terms of you know, from the work I do in family violence too, I think a lot about uh, it 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 has seemed to me that the way particularly the criminal law works in terms of gender-based violence is it says the state will take on the responsibility of securing your safety or acting where your safety has been violated. And so that's why the structure is that, the victim survivor is a witness or a complainant, sometimes in the most awful circumstances, not a live one. But what that should mean is that the criminal justice system needs then to take that social responsibility, that social contract, really seriously, that they are part of a broader kind of communal thing. But what we too often see is that that criminal process processes particularly become focused on the individual defendant their rights the circumstances the mitigation and the person who has experienced the violation who has you know given up her own right to a spear or a gun or to going around with a group of her family members to say, you did this to me and that was wrong. I mean, that's the trade here, but there's so little respect for that. I've been doing some work recently looking at sentencing judgments in um, fatal uh, homicides where uh, a woman was killed by her intimate partner and it, it seems to me there's a real additional layer of violence in the way that those voices disappear in those stories. You know, what happened to them, the extent of the violence across the years that the focus is on, is is only on the defendant and the defendant's rights in such a narrow way, and there is a broader obligation. When the state says we're going to stand in and we're going to do this work for you, which is the trade that we make, there's a broader obligation to community standards and to recognising and memorialising those who have been violated or whose rights have been taken away. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, well, I guess to, like, to answer the question, I wanted to first respond to the actual incident of Christian Porter and then talk more broadly about um, actually my thesis and my focus on the legal system within that. Um, but when I when it, when the whole Christian Porter thing happened, it was actually even though that it didn't progress and he eventually dropped the case, um, it was the timing. It was the strategic timing in which he launched that. Um, lawsuit because it meant that media and those that spoke in the media, including myself, couldn't speak about it um, unless we wanted to expose ourselves and possibly, you know, be sued. Um, And we were really, there was a lot of fear around just don't kind of, you know, be very cautious when speaking about it. So it's even if that doesn't progress and he doesn't, you know, he drops the case, it doesn't matter because it's still the timing. And that's kind of strategy that is quite concerning. That's, you know, one part of the legal system's facilitation. Um, the second is that part that also concerns me is um, our legal decision makers and who we nominate into these spaces as well. And, um, you know, I, I think of the recent nomination of the Human Rights Commissioner, um, somebody that has ties to the current government who has spoken out against enthusiastic consent reform with Bettina Arndt. Um, I'm not sure if many know her, but she actually interviewed Grace Taines Salter, um, very controversial. So we have people like that who are also now suddenly speaking out about consent when a very questionable background in my opinion Um, but I guess you know when when Anjali was talking about the patriarchal nature of the legal system I wanted to kind of flesh that out a little bit and what I found really interesting in my legal thesis was seeing how the court's structure of decision making is completely absent of thinking about women and often misses for example culturally diverse communities and and kind of focuses on this objective, but doesn't actually produce um, very equitable outcomes. So one example, for instance, is Comcare and Banerjee. That was a case that focused on, um, it was a public servant who had anonymous Twitter account, spoke out against the government's refugee policy, and the High Court kind of made this broad brush judgment that that public servants should be expected to be apolitical, even including in anonymous social media accounts, um, and kind of talked about this idea of impartiality and apoliticism but I kind of thought okay what does that mean in practice it means that if you go home you might even be cautious to like a Facebook post in an effort not to be political who does that disproportionately harm it's those that are not benefited by the status quo who are expected to remain silent, not only inside of work, but outside of work. And that means we're going to be creating a culture where it's turning away people that want to challenge and want to create better public policy that is more equitable because of the expectation of silence. And there was no consideration in that broad assertion of who public servants were. And I thought that was quite concerning. Um, the second example i point to is Roach, an electoral commissioner constitutional case, it was about um, the government tried to ban, basically say that every prisoner um, can't vote, more or less take away that right. Um, The court held that was unconstitutional. But again, let's think about that in practice, who's disproportionately incarcerated First Nations communities. So if you take away the right to vote, well, that absolutely has an effect on how democracy is functioning, and what groups are heard and what groups are excluded. There was no mention of this in the judgment. And I found that very concerning. And in fact, the plaintiff that brought the case, Vicky Roach, is a First Nations woman that was on a six-year jail term, which meant that she still couldn't, you know, vote, uh, she was disenfranchised re- regardless of um, the court's outcome. So it's that lack of consideration about these other, you know, it's the kind of broad brush assumption about, let's say, who prisoners are all the way to who public servants are, that misses intersectional nuances of power. And that
4: is why the legal system is patriarchal. Those are all really valuable points. Um, yeah, I think you all raised some really interesting thoughts for potentially what can be improved in the system, and also how the legal system has an impact beyond just the law itself. Um, I think that leads in nicely to our final question for the moderated um, Q and A portion of this evening. Um, so I guess with everything we've been discussing in mind, and just so we can end perhaps on a more positive note, um, how do you think that the unequal and unsafe workplace culture in Parliament that we've seen in the past year and even previously can be addressed, and how do you think it could be reformed in the future? And do you think that there's anything you've seen recently that in spite of these challenges um, shows that there might be some potential for change or has there been some positive change that you've seen recently in parliamentary culture? Um, I'm happy to start. I think the
1: positive change is actually that I've witnessed is really on a community level. And I mentioned Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, both examples of young women who spoke up even when it felt so difficult and resisted and because of that really created this huge effect of people mobilizing through march for justice across Australia particularly women um, of all their diversities and that was really exciting and you know as a young person myself I'm in a dorm room right now I participate in the March for Justice. And I came back and I saw placards of other young women that had taken part in that protest stacked up on the wall next to the dining hall. And everybody who walked past had to look at that and had to take notice that young women were calling for their bodily autonomy to be respected, you know, for respect, for dignity, for justice. And I think that's really important because in that moment, I saw all generations of, like I said, particularly women coming forward, those that had marched in the 70s all the way to now. And I think it's that linkages of different generations of feminists that is really exciting, because it's something that we need to realise that, you know, we're talking about the whole timeline of of a woman's life, you know, from young women to, to older women who also face, you know, a number of other hardships. So by connecting that, I think that's really exciting and realizing that we are a force. And I think that mindset shift, particularly in young women, of even seeing that, like I'm thinking about back in high school and, you know, I don't know whether it's the same now but back then there was a lot of stigma for even saying the word feminist and there was almost a judgment about saying you're a feminist aren't you? you're one of those feminists it was like a kind of a shameful thing and now I actually saw a shift where it was young women standing on stage young woman after young woman talking about their experiences and shouting and crying or saying nothing you know just kind of standing there and all of that is really really powerful because it was already different to my experience growing up in high school and, and that willingness to, to speak out. And there's really something in that because I think regardless of if, if our politicians dig their heels in the sand, that is encouraging that as a generation, we're seeing this in this moment right now. And the fact that again Brittany and Grace have made this this wave and haven't been silenced despite all the efforts to do so. There's something in that. And there's something that we should, you know, hold on to that kernel of hope. Um, because we did hear those stories and we are still hearing stories. So I think it's up to all of us to just continue to listen and continue to push. I think I'm um, one of
3: the key factors in changing the culture is obviously just having more women in the building, just having, you know, anything approaching 51% um, of female representatives um, in every level of government. Um, but one thing that I, would, I did want to say is that I think we're going to see really transformative change when we start being critical as well about Um, the decision-making frames that all of our leaders, including our women leaders, are coming um, to decisions from. So we don't just need more women in Parliament or... In local government, for example, we need um, more women who are taking the interests of other women into account in their decision making and in their policy processes. Um, We know that female representatives from both of our major political parties have made decisions in the past that disadvantage poor people, for example, the majority of whom are women. Um, And it's no good just having something approaching 51 percent in terms of representation if the same kinds of detrimental um, decisions are being made and so what's really required I think is both increasing representation but also um, a feminist frame through which to view governance and decision making and an intersectional frame to view those as well. a woman from a relatively privileged background is not going to be coming in with the same perspectives as someone who is not from a privileged background and similarly someone from um, a culturally and linguistically diverse background is going to have a very different perspective and hopefully a different way of approaching decision making than would someone who's not from one of those communities. Having said that, I think one of the really heartening things about working in the feminist space and thinking about these issues is that women are really resilient. They're adaptive and they're resilient and they're optimistic about what their futures and their families' futures hold. Um, This is an example from the United States, but I think it applies and it makes me feel good, so I'm gonna share it. But the 117th Congress in the US, which is the current sitting Congress, has the highest number of female representatives of any Congress in US history. And that is partly um, based on the work of political scientists, a reaction to Trump's presidency. Um, there were a lot of terrible things that were done in Trump's name, including to women. Um, But one of the things that has come out of it is that women from across the political spectrum have mobilised and have have gotten themselves a spot at the table. And I think um, trends like that are really encouraging um, and are not that uncommon when it comes to women, because I think we are extremely strong. We've been putting up with this stuff for a really long time. um, And that gives me a lot of hope about what can be done going forward.
2: I think that was really beautiful, Angela. and I and I um, don't really want to add to that, um, except to say that you know I I agree with everything you said that there needs to be a fundamental shift in political culture, um, so something that moves towards greater empathy, something that has um, a more of a, a feminist frame, um, and that needs to come from both men and from women. But I also agree with the need for greater diversity in parliament. I mean, I've been very pleased to see. Um, you know, the the impact that the quota system has had on the Australian Labor Party, which is now sitting at something like 47% of its federal members uh, being women. I also think, and Anjali will know more about this than me, that there's a lot to be learned from from local governments. In Victoria last year, we had local council elections and 44% of the incoming councillors are women. Um, with a greater diversity of from migrant communities, from LGBTIQ communities and Indigenous communities. So there's a lot to be learned there as well. Um, and Yasmin talked a little bit about, you know, the, the amazing leadership we've seen from young women at the grassroots. Um, but for me, that also needs to be matched by amazing leadership from senior political and elite leaders. And that's something that I think that we are missing um, and something that I think we should demand for the future. Um, And I think I'll I'll leave it there because I want to leave on a positive note, but I I also, you know, have been watching Australian politics long enough to know that there are small wins and small wins make a difference and they're worth celebrating. You know, I I was in Canberra when the first daycare opened at Parliament House in, I think, 2008, um, which made an enormous difference difference for the lives of of mothers who were working in Parliament House as parliamentarians or as staffers. You know, the first woman to breastfeed in Parliament started to change the discourse, started to change the language. Um, And I think even what we're living through now, the idea that we can have Parliament by Zoom, I mean, how will that open up opportunities for people to be able to participate in our governance systems if they don't need to spend half their year in another city? So I think all of these small wins are worth celebrating as well. I would
5: echo everything that's been said. I think the resilience of those in the fight is something that uh, is extraordinary. I have been so moved by those young women who have stood up and really led from the front and put their bodies literally on the line for for shifts and change to occur and I think when that happens it energizes other voices and it creates other opportunities and you know I was I re- noted that Lydia Thorpe after that came out and spoke specifically about the experience of being an Indigenous young woman in Parliament and told awful stories about someone walking behind her and breathing down her neck but you know that kind of evocative um, embodied experience that calls people in and makes room for more speech and for change and for opportunity it It's a very slow road and I think we need to keep holding on to the thought that it is changing, that there are small wins, that, you know, when the Brittany Higgins story came out and then there were all of the following kind of revelations, I heard Karen Andrews, who was a Liberal MP on the 7.30 report, and she just, I think the vernacular would be she cracked it and she cracked it at the men in her own party and she said, "This is, I hate this and it's hideous and I'm sick of it. Now, you know, I've been watching her name ever since, hoping that she would keep up that level of fierce advocacy for change and have been a bit disappointed. But, uh, you know, I think that's happening. Those comments are made. Those voices are heard. The drive and the desire for change, the Stamping of feet on that fourth on that March for Equality on the fourth um, of March earlier this year, you know, it it is reverberating, it's resonating, and people are hearing it and it creates opportunity. So I've got my
4: fingers crossed for that. Thank you so much for your contributions, everyone. That was really inspiring. I think it's great to see that. There is potential to make change especially by young women and hopefully that'll eventually turn into young men and older women as well joining in there um, to make change happen um, so that just concludes our moderated discussion we're just going to move into the q a segment of this panel